Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I am here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer, except Aaron Lammer... By telephone. By telephone in Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Hey, hey. I hope you guys have been uh, taking care of the studio while I was gone. No parties. Aaron, describe your studio. Where where are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking to you from a Chrysler minivan. (laughs) We Uh, should just make that our new studio. (laughs) Actually, you know... uh, Minivan it could be a pretty nice little whisper studio. It's nice and uh, audio isolated. Uh, you can air condition it, unlike our actual studio. You can fit 19 different people. Uh, who's on the show this week? This week on the show, I talked to the editor of Slate. Her name is Julia Turner. Uh, Slate just celebrated its 20th anniversary, which is kind of crazy that a web publication can be around for 20 years. All of us are old. Aaron's in a minivan. Slate is old, too. But Julia is very smart. She's been there for a while. And we talked about the uh, past, present, and future of Slate.com. I'm going to take a wild guess, and that is this episode is sponsored by MailChimp. I I haven't even been in contact. Am I correct? Yes, sir. You are correct. Aaron, what would you say is your number one favorite thing about MailChimp? Uh, my number one favorite thing about MailChimp, I'm going to say this changes from week to week. This week, it's all of the integrations with MailChimp. You can pretty much any software, WordPress, whatever you're using, if it has some way to sign people up for an email newsletter, that service integrates directly with MailChimp, which saves you time and means that you can do something amazing without knowing any code. Now here's Max with Julia Turner. Hey, Julia Turner. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. You would say uh, early morning and uh, you showed up with a bunch of bags. I did. I feel badly for making you tre- like, trek all the way here with your luggage. Uh, you know, when you have a day full of bags, why not take it to one, take those bags to one extra location? <laughs> I guess that makes sense, sort of. It doesn't really, but that's fine. <laughs> um, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, uh, but maybe we should start with uh, with your 20 year anniversary. Yeah, Mazeltov. Slate dot com is 20 years old. In internet years, you guys like live in Florida. Yeah, we're like the old lady of the internet, and and I love that. I mean, the part of why I wanted, you know, first of all, the last time we were at an anniversary at the fifteenth, when David Plotz was our editor and I was the deputy, we were like, forget that. What is fifteen years? Who cares? We just skipped it. Like, why celebrate their fifteenth anniversary? But the twentieth, I thought, was worth celebrating because, first of all, there are very few other digital-only publications that have reached twenty years, and I think it's really interesting to be twenty years old on the web because. Because the whole point of 
figuring out what journal. I mean, the whole thing Michael Kinsey was trying to do when he went to Redmond and got put on the cover of Newsweek wearing a slicker and holding up a salmon, which, A, it's hilarious that the launching of Slate was like news magazine cover news. I mean, Kinsey, I guess, was a big deal because of Crossfire and, and his reputation and his Kinsley-ness. But, um, we'll find it and put it in the show notes. Please do. It's an amazing image. Um, you know, and part of what he wanted to do is figure out, like, what was journalism going to be on the Internet, both in terms of the form and also in terms of the business, right? Like, if you cut out all those pesky tree-killing costs and printing costs and shipping costs and production costs and, you know, paying for the people at Barnes & Noble to put it in the right place costs, hey, maybe you can make a different kind of business out of this. So the experimentalism has always been there. And I think the thing that's really neat about being 20 years old is that we have a long experience of trying stuff and figuring out which things to stick with. And I actually think the whole key to surviving and thriving on the internet is that constant comfort with experimentation and change. And then also just like throwing experiments out the window, being like, okay, we tried that. Didn't work. As to the question- Fail quickly. That sounds so Silicon Valley and odious. (laughs) It it is. Both of those things. Terrible. Um, Isn't that kind of what you're saying? No. I don't know. Fail big-heartedly. I don't know. Just, like, be curious and try things. And I guess why I object to the Silicon Valley lingo is that feels like you're constantly other-directed. You're like, what could we be? We're a startup. We have no soul. We could be anything. We're Mm going to pivot. We're going to pivot again. Hey, let's try that. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, now we're a car company. Okay, now we're an AI company. You know, like, there's no soul in all that pivoting and trying. There's no core. And to me, what Slate is is this, like, really... There is this strong core of slatiness, which you can ask me to define, and then I will, then you will catch me out if you want, because it's very hard to define. But there's this core of slatiness, and the question is, what does slatiness mean on the internet of September 2016? Which honestly is different than the internet of April 2016 or October 2015. Like it changes so fast. All right, there's no way I'm not going to ask you. So just what is slatiness? What is the core of slate? The core of slate. Slate is your smart friend that you want to stand next to at the party who's always saying the most interesting stuff. Like Slate is illuminating, fun, lively, venturesome, good company, playful, argumentative, but in a joyful way and not a a pedantic or angry or ideological way. You know, the reputation, of course, is that we're contrarian, maybe that we're knee-jerk contrarian. We have our own hashtag, the Slate pitch, which I kind of love. And I think Slate's detractors would say, oh, you guys are contrarian because you just want to argue that up is down and black is white and you're just provocateurs for the sake of provocation. That's not what we're going for. I mean, what we want to do is surprise our readers and we want to do that by asking surprising questions and arriving at interesting answers and trying to do that in an intellectually honest way. How many subscribers do you have for Slate Plus? We have, I think, 17,000. That's pretty good. What are they, It's like five bucks a month or 30... 50- 50 bucks a year. 50 bucks a year. Currently on discount at 35, though, in honor <laughs> of our anniversary. Hey, go get your Slate Plus membership. Indeed. Um, so is that a success? Yeah. That's above what the goal was. I mean, we wanted to keep growing. The thing that I count as the success about it is that the growth rate is steady. I mean, we were not doubting that we could get a bunch of super fans at the beginning and then right. have like a thin, sad, flat line afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the thing with those kinds of uh, those kinds of paywalls. I mean, you guys are actually putting real stuff behind it, which I guess maybe is the differentiator. But like everyone I've ever talked to who does something like that, they get the same like 
three to five thousand people, and I kind of think maybe it's the same three to five thousand people who just do this all over the internet. <laughs> They're just supporting everybody. I kind of think so. <laughs> I, like there might just be like three to five thousand decent people in the world, and they just support all this stuff. Could but be, you, but you guys have gotten beyond that. Well, we've we've got an extra fourteen thousand. <laughs> yeah, you found fourteen thousand. Twelve to fourteen thousand. I mean, the thing that that I mark as a success, though, just to finish the thought, is that the growth rate is steady. Like mm. we've the the number we added in year one, year two, and now we're in year three. You know, there's been a small amount of fall off, but but very small. So we think there's a lot more growth ahead of us. Mm-hmm. I went um, back and looked at your like whole archive. Mm-hmm. And it, first of all, it, you've written so many things. Wait, Slate's archive or my archive? Your archive on Slate. Okay. Like your author archive. Great. Uh, which is 22 pages. Yeah, but most of those are podcasts. Yeah, there's a lot of them are podcasts. But in 2003, a lot of it is like that kind of like earliest, smartest aggregation stuff on the internet when you guys would like- um, do Oh, in other magazines. In other magazines, yeah. yeah. that was my first gig at Slate. It w- in other magazines, I kind of wish that still happened. I just was thinking that maybe we should bring that back. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about over the anniversary is like all the stuff Slate invented or has a plausible claim to having invented. I just actually recorded yesterday with all four of the editors all gathered and recorded a podcast about the whole history of Slate in which I claimed that we had- popularized and mainstreamed the practice of using links out to supplementary information in journalism because a lot of the early sites didn't link. And then I was excoriated for the rest of the day for claiming that Slate had invented links, which was not actually my claim. <laughs> it's very like, uh, very Al Gore, I invented the internet. No, I totally think it is like Al Gore, I invented the internet. But I actually that think- That is so funny though. I remember that. Do you remember like in like, yeah, 2005 or six, that was like a big debate at the Times was like whether or not they were going to link out. They still don't link out the way they should. Well, not the way I they mean, should, but at least it wasn't this like existential crisis. Well, the other thing I learned is that Kinsley said, oh no, in my initial memo, I said we would never link out it was too distracting so I was giving him for credit that apparently <laughs> for something he was against at the very beginning but you know I, I actually do think Al Gore style there is like a uh, possibly more than Al Gore style plausible claim that Slate invented the internet or at least invented the voice of the internet as we know it if you think about um, just the colloquial tone and the idea that journalism that was formal and had like the rigorous standards of journalism should sound chatty and should right. sound like a friendly email um, you know, Slate was early there. We were early on links. And we really were, I think we really actually did invent aggregation, like with today's papers and in other magazines, the idea that a smart person would just read everything for you and then give you a very short distilled version of it. And you are correct. My first gig at Slate was to read everything and summarize it. And, you know, I'm like 24 or whatever I was, just like laying down judgments, like, <laughs> good job, New York Times Magazine. Oop, no. really biff this one, New Yorker. They're like... The hubris of it is absurd. It's amazing, actually. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you saying that because that was definitely what struck me about it was, like, you really has like, a lot of declarative sentences. Oh in yeah, the, and and you were calling some people out, <laughs> like, straight like, calling some people out. I'm, and I was trying to picture like 24 year old Julia just being like, the New Yorker sucked this week. <laughs> It was a better read for my being so declarative, I bet. The I'm column. Sure, I'm sure. Like <laughs> I, I just I found it uh I found it totally inspiring. I definitely like I can't come up with a declarative sentence now, let alone, you know, ten years it's ago. It's so funny though, because I think the whole practice of figuring out how to be in an editing career, certainly in a journalism career, is like learning to trust your taste. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and like how I actually felt when I showed up at Slate in two thousand and three. 
you know, I had worked with a bunch of really smart people at Time Inc. who I respected a lot, from whom I learned a lot. But the people at Slate, that was some next level shit. Like I showed up, you know, on day one and they had some like huge policy fight about something or other. And Tim Noah was like, I think I should argue this. And then like in 90 minutes, it was like live on the Internet. And, you know, they were all um, just like impossibly smart and so opinionated. And I was like the one young woman in the office and felt both like, what the hell do I have to say that anybody wants to know? But the one thing I've always had really strong opinions about is magazines. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I've got some opinions here. I will share them. <laughs> I am ready for that part of it. <laughs> what What was the rest of it like showing up when you did? I mean, so you had this like little place where you could go and <laughs> sing The New Yorker, but... What was the rest of that? Uh, what was the rest of that experience like? Well, the main thing that struck me about it, and the thing that I loved about it, and the thing that I still love about it, is that two, I guess. One is just the colleagues. Like it's the smartest, funniest, most interesting, lovely group of people I've ever encountered, and that's why I've never left. But the thing that felt really striking coming from Time Inc. was that the editorial approach at Time Inc. was this act of triangulation. Here we are, smart, lively group of people in New York. We have a readership. They are somewhere else. Uh, we're going to try and figure out what they like that we would like and where the twain can meet. And we respect this audience. They're discerning enough to read us, but like, they're not us. <laughs> you know, like there's this fundamental act of distance between you and the audience. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just it was like, if you were interested, it was the, do it, go, do it. Like, don't be boring, don't waste people's time, but if it's interesting, chase it. And part of that, I think, was just the spirit of the place. Part of it, I think, was actually driven by the internet, right? Like, you don't have to fight for pages with anyone. Right. Um, And I actually think that created a really candid culture. Like, I've spoken to people who worked at print magazines said, oh, our ideas meetings are never very honest because you don't want to, like, slag someone else's idea because then it feels like you're just trying to elbow them out so there's room for your story or the thing you're pitching. But you don't want to be too nice about their idea because you want those pages for your shit. Um, and it's late. Like, every idea could rise and fall on its own merits because there was room for everything. Was it the kind of place where people did uh, speak candidly about other people's ideas? Would, would Like, was the culture of the place then that people would be like, uh, that's yes. Jack Schaefer, that's just a shitty idea? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Although, sometimes it went the other way. <laughs> what do you mean? Jack Schaefer would tell people their ideas were bad. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. I experience. mean, Jack Schaefer actually, for all his curmudgeonly persona, is like the most nurturing, wonderful editor. It was like just an incredible mentor to me to some degree, but to like many generations of young Slatesters. And is like part of why he was such a good mentor was he definitely told you if your idea sucked. So when he told you you had a good one, you knew he wasn't full of it. And that meant a lot. I had a coffee with him right around that time, actually. And I was like trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I had some clips and I showed them to them. And uh, they were all pretty cute, I think. Mm -hmm. And I remember very clearly he said this thing to me that I had to figure out how to put my finger between a rock and a hard place and tell the reader how much it hurt. I'm not sure I know what that means. I think it was just like do something uncomfortable. Ah. Get somewhere uncomfortable. Huh. Interesting. I don't know. It stuck with me. Yeah. He did not give me that advice, but maybe we need a different advice. <laughs> Walk me through what happens next. So you get there, you start uh, zinging, zinging the New Yorker, 
And uh, did you know at that point? That and you... and praising the things I loved. Sure. I sure. wasn't just like a, a I read snark a, factory. I, re- I read through a lot of uh, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> magazine roundups over the last like 24 hours. I would say it's like 80-20. Mm. You were harsh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was funny about that column is that there was no Twitter. There were so many fewer places to get feedback on your journalism. Like, I don't know if you remember this, but I think his name was Keith Kelly's column in the Post. Like, he would used to, like, give stars to stories. He would basically have a column every Monday where he would, like, rate all the magazines and give them stars. I don't remember that. And basically, that column and in other magazines, like, if you wrote a... There was no long form. That's what I'm trying to say. There was no long form podcast. There was like no place. No wonder you were interested in that column. It's like in the same business that you're in, in a way. Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, that was the original idea for this podcast. Was we were going to sit around and talk about magazines. Oh, like specific articles or magazines? We, yeah, we, we were just going to talk about like some articles from that week, and then we realized that <laughs> even us in like our 30s did not have the. Uh, hubris or courage that you had at 24 <laughs> we tried to do it and we were all such cowards that no one would say anything mean you guys should try again there's plenty of mean things to say of course there's, there there's are a lot of, of bad long form publish you guys are very you're very you're very positive you <laughs> well, try to you try to lift up the good which is probably the right approach yeah well i i mean i think our opinion is uh no one's got time for the bad anyway so we're going to talk about slate and long form in a second i want to keep going on on, on okay. you and uh how this worked for you Okay, yes, sorry. I keep trying to divert to Slate. I feel like you have such lions in this chair. I'm like, why? who cares about my history? But okay, here I am. Um, yeah, definitely when I first got to Slate, I was like, wow, these people have so many opinions and they're confident in their opinions. And, you know, Slate's a journal of opinion and analysis. And I had come from more like straight journalism. And so figuring out how to find a stance, like a way into mm-hmm. pieces that I would write was something I've tried to figure out at the beginning. But it also very quickly became clear that I'm like an editor and not a writer. I mean, I... How did you figure that out? It wasn't that hard. Like, I like editing a lot. And I like the act of imagining how the reader will experience the thing and trying to optimize that for them, trying to make it land, trying to give it the power that it has the potential to have. And I like how collaborative that is. I like the back and forth with the writers about what the stories are. I like actually... The getting into the copy of it, it's like fun to do a really good structural edit. Like all, I don't, I barely do any of that anymore. But I just really like that stuff. And you know, there were a lot of good editors at Slate when I first got there. And so anyway, I I was the assistant editor, whatever I was, and I had that column for a while. And then I quickly took started editing the explainer column, writing some explainers. And this was all a sort of like a temp ish kind of one year gig. Yeah. Um, Your parents are both like newspaper people, right? Yes, they met working at the Boston Globe. What did they think of you going to work for this uh, online publication? They thought I was crazy, because <laughs> I, I had an offer for like a proper job at a glossy in New York, and then I went down on the train to interview with David Plotz for this like, technically it was the editorial assistant job, and uh, it was for a year. I forget if there were benefits. If there were, they were limited. And I was like, I think I'm going to just move away from my life to go work for a year on the internet uh, for less money and a worse title. And they were like, <laughs> all right. And I was like, I don't, you, these people just seem different. They seem really smart and really fun. They're like, okay, whatever. What was the glossy? Popular science. Hmm. 
whole different path. Wow, sliding doors. Yeah. You could be the editor of Popular Science right now. I suppose. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So you knew early on you wanted to be an editor. Was that like a helpful thing to know at that place at that time? Like, that's the thing. I feel like we've we've talked to a lot of editors now on the show and, and a pretty consistent thing that they say is it was very helpful to realize that early and not, even though pages weren't an issue at Slate, like not have that part of your ego tied up in, in trying to get your byline out there. For me, it wasn't, the ego is just like writing is miserable. I hate writing. It's so hard. It's a much harder task, I think, than editing. And it's much more solitary. And I'm like, a, I love the interplay. Like I love when an idea zigs back and forth and gets better, like because of all the people it touches. And I think that happens all the time. It's late. And that's what makes my job fun. And I mean, I thought I wanted to be a professor when I went to college. I mean, my the whole, my like, you know, I thought I was going to be an English professor. And then my senior year in college, I both wrote a thesis and edited the weekly. And what actually happened is that I did not write a thesis <laughs> and had a lot of fun editing the weekly and then literally wrote my whole thesis in like one week at the end of the year. I was like, I'm not cut out for this, the solitary <laughs> slog and the stacks. That's not me. Um so yeah, I don't know. And I also really value editing, like the not to take your ego out of it, but like when you there's a lot of satisfaction, emotional satisfaction in like helping people be awesome. Mm-hmm. Did I, you uh, ha- did you always know how to help people be awesome, or is that something you learn? Well, I'm, every edit is its own edit. I'm sure there's times when I fail to help people be awesome still daily, but. I think I had a knack for it. I actually took this really useful class in college. I was a writing fellow, and my college structured their writing fellows thing kind of interestingly. It was mandatory. Like, basically, you would get assigned to a course, and then everybody in that course had to work with a writing fellow on their paper. So it wasn't the sort of opt-in thing where only people who knew they were maybe a little bad bad at writing but wanted help with it got writing fellows you just had to work with all these recalcitrant weirdos who were just like why do i have to talk to you um and there was this really intense semester-long course preparing for it where we essentially talked a lot about editing it was basically a course in editing about how to pick things apart and structure and language and i wish i still had that syllabus it was a great course uh sounds amazing i bet that informed it somewhat I don't think there was anything like that available to me. It would have been great. The, my favorite thing we did in that class was that we had to we had to do this really intense analysis of our own style. So some paper I wrote for like a U.S. and Latin American history class or something I took. And we had, there were like six different schema by which we had to map it, like using highlighters, like take it and highlight all the different parts of speech a different color and then uh, you do it a second time and take it and alternate like active and passive sentences and figure out, you know, just literally analyzing what you had actually done sentence by sentence, clause by clause, and then write a paper about it. And I remember realizing that the, the metaphor I came up with was that I was like an anxious hostess in my <laughs> writing, that there were all of these closets, these like little, I, I didn't trust that at any specific moment in the essay, which, mind you, was like a bad essay about, (laughs) like, Western Hemisphere geopolitics, but, you know, leaving that aside, um, that, like, in any given sentence, I really wanted to make everybody comfortable. Like, remember, like, this is the decade we're in, and this is the, you know, like, I was kind of being (laughs) a little too solicitous. Yeah. And it was really interesting to analyze that, see that, and be like, oh, all right, you got to let it breathe. 
You yeah. gotta like trust that you're carrying them along. You don't have to remind them that it's still the 1920s again in this sentence or whatever. Um, so I think that might have helped, but I also just, I don't know, like my, I grew up in a family where like we were really excited when the local grocery store changed the checkout lane to 10 items or fewer instead of 10 items or less. Like, <laughs> like that was like a family moment. Like we were so excited. There was a uh, small fruit farm that we used to pass, mm-hmm. uh, my mother and I all the time, and there was a sign outside, small fruit farm, and it was like a, a decade-long debate about whether that was the small family, <laughs> the size of the farm is small, or they just made uh, very, small very, very, very tiny fruit. They picked really early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just like always kind of the undercurrent, and I never thought I wanted to be a journalist. Like My parents were both journalists. I revered them. They are wonderful parents. I, you know, I thought what, their work was cool. But I wasn't like, I'm going to be like mom and pop, you know. But then I like ended up editing my high school newspaper and then I ended up editing my college newspaper. And then one thing I actually realized is that to the degree, I mean, so I have not mostly edited, but to the degree that I've focused writing in my post sniping at the New Yorker days, um, I've written a bunch about design. Yeah. And that was your fresca. I did do a fresca about design, about signage and yeah. wayfinding and why Penn Station is so fucked up. I just reread it this morning. Uh, that's a good piece, I think. Yeah. I think it holds up. Totally holds up. It was great. I kind of wanted you to like do another one. Yeah. There's like a world where I didn't go down the editing path and I just obsessively dogged the story of what's going to happen to Penn Station, which is super interesting <laughs> and on, on which there have been quote unquote developments because there's always a new plan, but like that plan never happens. There have been like 10 plans since I wrote that piece, but- None of them has happened, and none of them may happen. I, I had this like revelation way too late into the into some of my writing being about design of like, oh, that's what my mother ended up writing about actually. Like she had a column about design and preservation in Boston. That's comical that I didn't recognize that at all. Yeah, I think that that's like um, that's just self preservation to not recognize that. You know, <laughs> like I think that's just us like protecting ourselves from realizing that we are so wildly unoriginal. It's interesting. Like I was trying to ask you about. I was interested in like your evolution from 24-year-old editorial assistant to running the place. And it's interesting to me that your where your head went was like, well, here's some things I learned in college. Well, yeah. I mean, you asked me what's my was I always an editor? And I think I was an editor before I got to Slate. Like I don't think I got to Slate and was like I want to be a writer. And then I learned that I wanted to be an editor. I think I've always been more interested in editing from the beginning. And I don't I think I don't know why that is. Maybe that's because of college or my family or I don't know but I actually kind of think sometimes it connects with the design interest like in a weird way good design is anticipating what other people's needs and experiences will be and and like crafting an experience that's oriented towards how those people will use a thing or view a space or it's orientation right like editing good editing is orienting good editing is user experience right and so I think that set of interests that kind of like spatial experiential empathy set of interest is actually kind of related Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second to tell you a little bit about our sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up, our friends at Audible. And uh, if you were listening to this show, this show where writers come on and talk about their work and uh, you listen to it. My guess is that you would like Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word content in the world. They have more than 250,000 audiobooks. They've also got a host of new 
great original podcast that you can listen to. Uh, the books, those books I'm referring to, the 250,000, they include many from people who have been on the show. Michael Lewis, uh, Cheryl Strayed, ta Coates, fantastic books that you can listen to in the same exact headphones that you are listening to this podcast on. Go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. You'll get a 30-day free trial and you'll get to download a free book of your choice. Go do that. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week, Igloo. Our friends at Igloo. Igloo is a modern internet designed to keep everyone on the same page. In today's workforce where everyone is working remotely all the time. An internet is a crucial way for your team to communicate. It is the thing that allows us to work remotely, and Igloo is a fantastic option. Long form, uh, that's how we work. Aaron and I are in the same place sometimes. A lot of the time we're not. We've got uh, someone in D.C., we've got someone in Europe, we've got people reading articles who live all over the country, and an internet is a way for all of those people to stay in touch. You can share files, you can have real conversations in real time, and you can do it all while using the apps you currently use. Use Box, Google Drive, Skype. Igloo brings everything together and it creates this single destination that lets you focus on your work. Put simply, Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. Try today at igloosoftware.com slash longform. That's igloosoftware.com slash longform. Start talking to your teammates in a way that actually works. Thanks to Igloo for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Julia. <laughs> How much of your job now is is like big picture user experience? Like how much of your job now is product? Because I feel like you guys are trying to figure out what Slate is all the time. Like you were talking about and run these experiments and introducing something like Slate Plus is kind of this like radical difference from user experience. There's all this stuff that like you're constantly being told you're not getting or then you sign up and get, you know. How much of your job is thinking about that, is thinking about the product, not the words? That was actually a lot, much bigger part of my job when I was David's deputy. So to to not keep dodging your questions and actually finish the narrative. So uh, I was editorial assistant. Then I was an assistant editor in the culture department and worked under Megan O'Rourke during Jacob's tenure. And then when David Plotz took over as the editor of Slate in, I think, 08, I became his deputy. And I was his number two for his six years running the place. And he's a great boss. I learned a lot from him. But one of the things that I did during that time and that I think put me in the position for him to choose me for that is that I had gotten kind of involved with the product side and being the editorial point person who thought, how does this redesign work? How does it fit into our workflow and process? How does it look and feel and work? So I did a lot of that dealing with the stuff and what it looks yeah. like and how it's made. And actually, since I took over, I've sort of done less of it because our product team is more there's more of them and they're more sophisticated and it's like like we have a real product team now. <laughs> right, it's not like somebody else is like part-time Well, that like shouldn't actually project. be my job. Like, I, you know, the, the the model where I was like, let's make it like this. Um, right. That was fun for me, but it's probably not actually the most efficient way to do it. Well, that's another place that's interesting about like, or maybe that's one of the downsides or the harder part of being 20 in internet years is you now have these sort of inherent like legacy concerns that the print publications that Slate was set up as like an alternative to had when the thing started, you know? So it's like you guys have been doing whatever it is for 15 years. This is the way you do it. Um, readers have come to expect that that's the way that you do it. And someone else can come along, start a website, start a publication on, you know, fucking Instagram or something, <laughs> you know? And it's like, uh, you guys got to keep doing your thing. So that, that, 
I imagine that that is hard from just from a product perspective, like continuing to move the thing forward while having these kind of like you got to make sure that you're. Yeah, well, you have to on. decide which things you want to invest in, right? Like you can't, you can't try, you can't actually try everything. You know, the one of the the sort of myths or the or the misconceptions of Kinsley starting the place was like, great, it's going to be so cheap on the internet. And it turns out to, you know, the production costs of like having a proper dev team and having a really good product team and having, you know, good designers and all the rest of it. I actually haven't done the math, but it's certainly not as cheap as Kinsley thought it would be at the beginning Yeah, um, to really do that stuff well. You know, so like we decided not to go after a Snapchat discover situation because that was, that's like a lot a big expensive bet mm-hmm. and it's more it's smarter I think for us to like find little bits and pieces and places where you can dip a toe in and see whether there's something that connects with your voice how has how has that stuff changed the way that you guys do your work Facebook and Twitter and, and social like again it's, it's just, it, it, like you're in this unique position right where well, right, 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 the right. thing was kind of fully formed before like the internet became the internet that we know now. Well, we got very lucky. Like, so one of the things you can see over the arc of two decades is that there are all these kind of publishing and distribution innovations, and then they beget their own media behemoths, right? So there was blogging, and it begat Gawker, and there was search engine optimization, and it begat HuffPo, and there was social, and it begat BuzzFeed. Begat may not be the right verb there, but like there, there were kind of these big new companies that were like, hey, I'll start a thing from scratch based on the exact specific media moment that we live in now. Might not be the right word. It's a really good word, though. Begat. It's good. It's good. It's probably wrong for this, but it's good. <laughs> um, you know, what we've done through all of those moments is figure out, okay, well, what's the slate approach to this yeah. particular moment? And the most recent one, the social one, which I think is the biggest and it's had, I think, the most deleterious effect on the most editorial brands. We kind of got lucky. I mean, David was very smart, and also we kind of got lucky. But the thing that we did, and this is sort of what I mean about Slate being the voice of the Internet, which is, you know, provocative, vivid arguments, strongly put, is actually the thing that worked well on social. So we did not have to wildly change our brand for the stuff we were doing to work pretty well. Are you basically saying like you guys were doing clickbait before clickbait was clickbait? Well, I object to the term clickbait. <laughs> and while we're on the subject of objecting to terms, I also object to the denigration of the take because I think a take is a very useful thing. But I mean... I, I think I think the uh, hot take cliche is, is... This is my hot take, is that hot take cliche is on its way up. I wrote a hot take defending hot takes like a year and a half ago, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim credit for that victory. Claiming credit for links, claiming credit for hot takes. Hubris all the way <laughs> over here. What What will you not take credit oh for, Julia gosh. Turner? Oh, my gosh. Monster. Monstrous editor, <laughs> Julia Turner. Ego all over the studio. Um, so you guys you feel like you were set up well for this. Era. Yeah, which is not to say that, you know, we didn't sort of have to adjust the voice of our headline somewhat or that we did that we kind of came through the era entirely unchanged the strategy there was basically let's do more you know like the the facebook ecosystem turned web publishing into this kind of endless i don't know i don't spend enough time in casinos to know what the right metaphor but like craps table slash roulette wheel anyway casino slot machine whatever the more bets you placed the more potential there is for a huge viral right win 
So for two or three years there, you just saw this massive expansion in publishing volume across a lot of sites as people tried to achieve scale and become like establish these huge claims uh, in terms of the overall size of their audience. And so we expanded. We published more about history. We published more about science. We published more about culture. Um, we expanded some coverage in sports and photography, visual stuff. LGBT was a, a place where we made a big investment in coverage. Um, so we were able to grow during the social boom while mostly being fairly similar to old slate, but probably a little faster, a little bloggier, you know, fewer, a little less constrained to the 800 to 1200 word piece being like the main unit of content at slate. And I think that era is basically over and Hmm. that I think you're seeing a lot of brands, media brands, media companies reckoning with the fact that that's not a permanent state. And you've seen, you see a lot of hand-wringing, right? I, I imagine a man of your interest reads John Herman's columns, both in their all-bot and New York Times botless sure. stage. And there's just like so much anxiety about, oh, the Facebook algorithm, are they going to charge or is it going to change? Or are they going to video or this or that? And it's like a lot of people got really excited for a few years that on the internet distribution was free and in fact really cheap and easy. But in the history of media, distribution has never really been free. And a lot of people made a lot of big bets and investments, and venture capitalists made big bets and investment based on like, whoa, look at how easy it is to get big audiences. Right. And now that may be changing as Facebook's priorities change. And I, I don't know. I'm not panicked about it. Like, Because you guys just didn't invest quite that much. Like you played the game, but uh, like kept going home to the same house every night or something. Yeah. <laughs> What's the terrible metaphor to use? Like, Yeah, well, it's like you, you want to take advantage of, you know, sort of winning the lottery, right? Suddenly, media was like what people were doing online in their free time. It was like the thing that this huge new player was emphasizing. That was very exciting for all of us that brought huge new audience. I mean, Slate's audience is much bigger than it was five years ago. But I think of that number, that, you know, the Comscore UV number. Do a lot of the writers who come on here talk about Comscore UVs? <laughs> Unique visitors to your site every month in Comscore. Um, no. Like a lot of people think of that as the end game. Like how big is that number? There's the whole kind of like macho fight between the Post and the Times this year about who has more. And then yeah. there was a fight between BuzzFeed and CNN recently. Like that's the number people have I wish been focused people, on. I, I wish people could see how completely your eyes are rolling right now. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's not an audience. Those are like leads on a real audience. The, mm-hmm. the people who come through your door once through social <laughs> That's that's not your audience. Those are people who could become your audience. And so the thing that we've been focusing on at Slate in the last couple of years is like really doubling down on the core of who we are, which is trying to do work that's surprising and distinctive and very good. And to do that in all the forms and places that it makes sense at the moment, which like my opinion on which places changes from day to day and our strategy evolves. But that's what we've been focused on is trying to double down on the stuff that feels distinctive and original. Because if you spend all your time on a social platform and a bunch of media brands are optimizing all their content for that social platform, all those media brands' headlines stay the same. All the content is pretty interchangeable. And it turns media into this commodity where then, like, what is the point of, of developing a media company for 20 years? You might as well take the Silicon Valley approach and just, like, make a new one every three years for whatever that moment is. I have this theory that editors are playing for media Twitter like all the time. 
yeah, uh, not even consciously. It's like subconsciously. I just think like when in you, terms of the the choices that they make and want to publish, or in their like self presentation. I think if you have like a machine on your computer that um, is just there all the time that like claps for you, the the desire to make it clap is really high. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, like when I worked at print newspapers we would judge the success of a story based on like letters to the editor. Mm-hmm. And it was like, if three letters to the editor came, that was a unsuccessful story. But if nine came, that that was probably a successful story. There's always a metric. Right, there's always a metric, except it's like, we're talking about three people here. And I feel like Twitter is now the metric for, for some folks. And that also is still like a very small subset of the audience. But that's a way I feel like that coverage is converging is it seems to me that there's more and more feature stories that seem um, like things I would expect Twitter to love. From Slate or from companies broadly? Companies broadly, not from Slate. Yeah, playing to Twitter is a real thing. I mean, there is that media audience on Twitter and there was some reporting in the Gawker meltdown about how Nick Denton began to edit by Nuzzle, that he was just kind of like trying to figure out how many Twitter influencers were linking to Gawker stories on Nuzzle on a given day. And I see the temptation for that. It's fun when a slate piece is at the top of, of Nuzzle. Yeah. But that's, well, if the overall Comscore UV number is not your audience, your Twitter followers is not your audience either. Like media, it, you have to find something between media Twitter and the the total number of people coming to your site every month. Right. But that balance, I guess that's what I'm asking about is like, what I hear you saying, and you tell me if this is wrong, is like you can't invest too deeply in these fads because they're all fads, and yes. it's gonna some other thing is gonna pop up, and that's gonna be where the eyeballs go. And you got to play that game on some level, but you can't like lose your soul in the process. Yes, the only risk there is like maybe one of these things isn't a fad. Maybe one of these things is the way that like people are going to read or consume stuff, and I wonder whether as the person who's like steering the ship for Slate, whether that decision to sort of stick with what you're doing, stick with what you know how to do well, play to the kind of like core, ever feels risky? That's a good question, but I guess I would frame it slightly differently. I don't see it as like we've been doing the same thing since 1996 and we watched the little fad starbursts in the sky and we're like, ha ha, and then we just keep going, you know? (laughs) Like each trend, each wave changes us, right? We are a different magazine than we were before blogging and before search and before social. And I think we're a better magazine as we've grown. But so it's not that you you say we're just going to hew to the course and do what we're doing. You say, what is the slady way to do this next thing? And I think that's really different. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel risky to you. It feels fun. Yeah, it does feel fun. I mean, there's a risk. Like, it's journalism in 2016. <laughs> It's it's uh What do you mean by that? It's not all like bar carts and uh and gravy everywhere. You know, it's it's there's a I lot was at, of I was in your offices recently. There were some bar carts around. There actually is a bar cart in our office. <laughs> Good point. It's all bar carts and gravy. Booze <laughs> <laughs> is a constant, I think, uh in journalism. But um yeah, no. I mean, there's risk. There's there's decisions that you can make, but you but you have to make the decision based on what you can feel is resonating for your real audience. Like that's the real thing you have is the relationship with people who value Slate. And I think I would feel more risky if it wasn't clear to us that that 
group of people is like thriving and growing and multi-generational and it's not just like a bunch of people who started reading us in 1996 and are like, I liked it back when you did this and that, you know, like. Why Julia Turner with those magazine recaps? <laughs> and I think like one of the one story of our approach to an innovation or a trend is the podcast story at Slate, which we started podcasting total accident 10 years ago. We had a partnership with NPR to produce a midtime daily show and we were going to really shake up how NPR shows sounded and make them really excited and zingy and fresh and slaty, right? <laughs> a little, little less sonorous and measured. Mm. Um, and we hired Andy Bowers, a great NPR vet, to be like Slate's lead on the project. Turns out it's really hard to make NPR not be NPR. Totally failed. Uh, the show kind of flamed out uh, and or our involvement in it diminished. And so we still had this audio guy around and he was like, well, what if I make podcasts? And we're like, all right. So he literally like went into a closet and started reading our stories out loud. And I think it was months. I think we were doing podcasts for months before anybody else at Slate like even figured out how to listen to podcasts. Like we were like, yeah, yeah, Andy, that sounds great. And like only a few months later was I like, yeah. all right, now I have an iPod. Like how do I download the thing? Like, it's a funny thing about just people in the office being like, why does that guy keep going in that closet? <laughs> Luckily, Andy worked from L.A., so we didn't uh, we didn't actually get to see his skulking habits and pester him about them. But anyway, he developed these formats, these chat show formats that we do. The Political Gab Fest was the first one, and the Culture Gab Fest, which is the weekly culture show I do, we started soon after. And um, we could just feel that they worked. Like, the, the level of engagement of our audience with those shows was pretty intense. And we made no money on them for six years, basically. Wow. Maybe like a couple ads here or there. Was it just like a, another thing to be doing, another way to reach people? Or was it like at some point, I bet this American Life is going to put out a show and then all this shit is going to change? We did not have a crystal ball <laughs> in which Sarah Koenig's face hovered <laughs> alluringly. No. <laughs> so it was just like something you guys were doing because it was fun? Yeah, we were doing it because it was fun. Honestly, Total candor, like David and I each had a show and we were the two people in charge. And like, so we knew very firsthand how fun it was and the kinds of feedback we were getting from people like lining up to see live shows and yeah. you know for all that we're talking about the marvelous egolessness of being an editor like a podcaster lets you really get your ego kicks on the side right I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about yeah I'm sure um, so you know I'm sure there was some like just you know real politic of, of management and power there right you are you are uh, this is kid I feel like this is kind of like uh, we've had a lot of editors on and no one has said that thing that you just said, which is also like kind of how the world works, which is like sometimes the person who gets to decide just decides what they want. <laughs> David David was very wise and surely foresaw everything and it wasn't selfish at all. <laughs> <laughs> but But I don't think it was a bad bet. Like the thing that was exciting to us was not just... I mean, it wouldn't have been exciting. The ego gratification wouldn't have been there if we'd been putting all this effort into these shows and, like, we weren't getting lots of emails every week being like, you're my lifeline while I'm here in the Peace Corps or all of the expats I know in Beijing, like, try to trade your insights as their own at expat parties and then we call each other on it because we know we're all listening to your show or, <laughs> um, you know, I listen to your podcast. Like, I've been having to drive hours every weekend to help my mom in hospice care and, like, you guys are the only thing that's distracting me. Like, thank you so much. Like, I mean, whatever. You're back to the three to nine letters metric or whatever. But the the kind of engagement and relationship that it seemed clear we were developing with these audiences felt A, powerful, B, new, 
and see very Slady, right? Like if Slade is right. your smart friend who's like helping you figure out what to think about the world, that's what our shows are. It's like you hang out with your smart friends. You feel like your smart friends. I mean, I've met people who listen to our podcasts and they feel like they know me and I kind of know what that feels like because I listen to all of our podcasts too. And I, you know, like Noreen Malone, who's on our Double X show, used to work at Slate. I see her like twice a year. And I feel like whenever we catch up, I like, you know, we have like a podcast friendship. <laughs> anyway, so some some of it's like real politic, but but I don't think we were crazy. Yeah. And we probably at the same time that we tried podcasting, we, you know, we had some early experiments with video. Uh, we were doing like interesting things with, sl- with video slideshows then and slide. I mean, there was, you know, pick the innovations that Slate played with in 2006 or whenever the first podcast aired. There's a bunch of other ones that just didn't fit Right, and this us. is the one that stuck. It's the one that felt Sladiest. Yeah. It's the one that felt like this is an exciting new medium that's really in line with what we strive to do, which is be companionate insight, right? Like, and make you feel that sense of connection of like there's other people out there who see the world like me, which is my favorite thing about magazines as opposed to news. It's like, oh, the fact that some group of people is creating this thing that values communicating in this way and values being interested in this kind of things and that I'm part of the audience. You feel this kinship with the rest of the audience. And that that sense of the club that you're in, not an exclusive club, but just the like, like, yeah. you, like a, I think a good magazine makes its readers and audience feel great because it makes them feel that they are not alone in what they value about how to look at the world. Can we zoom ahead real quick to Panoply? Yeah. So you guys did all this this um, pro bono podcasting, <laughs> ego stroking podcasting, and then podcasting has become a more mature business. You guys are, I assume, started to see real revenue on the shows and sort of spun it out. Yeah. And you have your own podcasting network empire. We do. It's beautiful. I went to your, all your studios. They're gorgeous. They're pretty fun. At this point, how much of the both like time and energy and like brain space is Panoply taking up for Slate as a whole. And also like, I assume it's revenue is broken out the way you guys do your books, but like, how's it doing money wise compared to Slate? I mean, Panoply is doing great. Panoply, so Panoply is our audio arm and we're all one company, but Panoply sort of has many businesses that it's in besides producing podcasts for Slate. It produces podcasts for other magazines. It produces podcasts for individual authors and people like Malcolm Gladwell and Gretchen Rubin. It's, you know, also sells ads against podcasts that other people produce. It also has this podcasting CMS technology that it's licensing out to partners like Gimlet. So it's there's a revolution coming in the way audio works. You know, the essentially what podcasts are, despite their kind of narrow and dopey name, is like time-shifted audio media. And there's a lot of big plays to make in that space. Like, what's going to happen when your cars don't have radios anymore and they just have like a digital audio player? So the Panoply team is focused on all of those opportunities. I'm not focused on those opportunities. I'm focused on Slate's shows and growing Slate's shows and keeping Slate's shows fresh in an environment where there are lots of new shows out there. So you're not connected to like the Panoply decisions at all? I'm I'm like a friend of the family to the Panoply decisions. Yeah. I mean, I was very involved with the decision to launch it. You know, we all talk about everything all the time. But uh, from a revenue standpoint, where does that where does pan the Panoply arm fit with like the rest of the stuff you're doing? Podcast advertising is doing well for all of us. 
that is that is how it works. That is how it works. Yeah, and having built out a nice um, a sales operation that's targeted around podcasting has been very good for the company overall. Is it hard to to keep? I mean, I'm sure it's exciting. Like the thing is growing and it's doing well, and and you guys have like Gladwell coming in and making shows. You know, we we started by talking about like the core of Slate. Is it hard to keep that core intact when all of a sudden there's this like other business in the office? I don't think so. I think it's exciting and people feel proud of it, you know? Like they feel like it's this thing that we helped build. And I think our goal is to kind of keep experimenting and finding more things that seem like they resonate for the kinds of audiences that we're looking for and build those. I read this uh, interview with you when uh, you took the job, 2014. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, another goal of yours was to increase the amount of long-form journalism that Slate was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you doing with that? I think we're doing well. I also, did I say, did I use the phrase long-form? It might have been someone like like fed it to you. There might have been a leading question involved. Because I, no offense to your show, object to the term long-form. Oh, great. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? Yeah, it's a super fun conversation. Oh, no. No, that's fine. I'm interested in your objections. Well, it's just a weird, it's a word that has come to be a stand-in for ambitious journalism that is driven by its own instincts and imperatives uh, and not by the social market, or at least that's how I think about it. Like maybe long form, it, it shouldn't describe the result, but the process of making the thing. Oh, okay. In a way, or or, or that's that's how I think about it. Like, I don't really want to read a lot of long pieces, <laughs> like sometimes if they're really good. Yeah. Um. But I do want to read ambitious pieces, and I do think that the the market of the internet does favor like something happens, you think about it, you're right. It happens, think about it, you're right. The kind of like you know rinse, wash, repeat cycle of the internet is can be enervating for journalists. And so the way long form has evolved at Slate is that you know David I think had that insight early on um, that the internet was exhausting, and launched this thing, the Fresca Fellowship where basically people at Slate could take a month off, go do some crazy project, publish it, come back to their normal gig. And it was great. We published a ton of really fun, interesting work doing that. Um, just, just Gross on the Bears. I think that's my favorite fresco. Just Gross on the Bears is great. Um, Emily Bazelon on Phoebe Prince, Tim yeah. Noah on Income Inequality, Josh Levine on The Welfare Queen. We published a lot of great pieces. But one thing that struck me as I took over was that the schedule on which we were doing that, there wasn't one. <laughs> a, like it was, it was very random. It was very driven by writer interests. Um, and I think one case in point here is Dave Weigel, who was our politics writer for a long time. His fresco was about prog rock because he came off covering the 2012 election and was like, "Fuck politics." That's probably maybe not how he would put it, but and he's he loves prog rock and feels like it didn't get any respect and wanted to give it due respect which felt like a great slight pitchy idea that was utterly sincere which is the the ones we like so he went and he wrote a fantastic piece about prog rock which i think he's still in the process of turning into a book but so as a like writer perk and writer regeneration tool that mode of running long format slate was great but for the magazine is it the best for the magazine if the most ambitious thing Dave Weigel does for us is not a piece of political reporting. Right. I didn't really think so. (laughs) (laughs) Like I wanted, I want people to be doing ambitious work on their beats, Mm -hmm. not just as a break from their beats. And that seems like a user experience idea to me. 
Yeah, maybe. Might be a user experience. Well, I mean, just like if you've been reading Dave Weigel writing about politics, and uh, then he writes like, you know, 8,000 words about prog rock, you're like, oh, man, that was really interesting. I wonder what it would be like if he wrote... If his uh, next one were about... If he about... spent that much time thinking about politics. Yeah. 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 So... Right. And I don't want the balance to be too on the nose there. I mean, the the things that I want Slate Pieces to do are like make you feel smarter about the world, maybe change your mind about something and surprise you. Like those are the core things that it excites me when a Slate Piece does and maybe makes you crack up. And so there's definitely a good surprise element in throwing Dave Weigel at prog rock. Like one of my other favorite things that we've done since I've been editor is republish the Melville story Bartleby the Scribner with this crazy interactive annotation that looked through all the historiography of how, you know, the Marxist interpretation and the, you know, homosocial interpretation and the this and that interpretation. And we found these great uh, stereoscopic images of New York in the 19th century and, like, made these basically gifts of the past. And that's just a great read that's very pertinent about office life in 2015 or whenever we ran it. So just surprising readers by being totally random, or we used to have a term for this in the plots era, um, peninsular, like when you did work that was just sort of out on some random peninsula rather <laughs> than at the core of the news and the conversation. Yeah, I love when we do that, and I want us to still do that. But my overall sense of our long-form project when I took over was like, this is too random. It's too mm. sporadic. It's too random. It's too confused. And like we're, we remain a really good place to go for reactions to the conversation, but we're not starting enough conversations. So we have taken a page out of a very old and even older than Slate fusty playbook and have started publishing what we think of as a weekly cover story. And we haven't really like branded that super publicly. I mean, it's called... They, they, yeah, I see the tag. Yeah, that's what the tag New York, is called. New York Magazine doing the same thing. Like the cut is doing the same thing. Yes. A couple places are doing yeah. it. And I think that this is what I say when I think like a lot of places are kind of uh, pulling away from just chasing social traffic. Like... I just wanted us to be starting more conversations and be producing something every Monday that felt like it was planting a flag in that direction. And as weekly magazine editors from Time Immemorial can tell you, you don't hit it every time out. Um, Is that how you judge success for those stories, though, like conversation? Mm, well, that, that's kind of circles back around to the nuzzle part of it, because whose conversation where. But yeah, basically, I mean, I, I want to publish ambitious pieces that change the way people think and talk about the world. And I don't think those should all be long form. And we've done some that are more kind of classic long form pieces. We did one for the the week of the Republican convention that was just a list of 161 things Donald Trump had done in his life. We kept opinion out of it, just like factual things he had done, acts he had committed that seemed to us disqualifying for the presidency and like let readers up and down vote it. I mean, that's not a piece of long form, but it was kind of a fun way to present the entirety of Trump. Right. Um, it, it sort of felt on the eve of the RNC, like, what else is there to say about Trump? And we were like, let's not say anything. Let's just present the facts. I'm happy that we made it this long without talking about Trump. I feel I'm proud of both of us. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy right now. Um, and I will at some point on this podcast uh, discuss my feelings about everyone's distaste for the word long form. But now is not that time. The thing I want to ask you about before we get out of here is um, for decades, the media has decided that they will not release early election result numbers uh, on election day for fear that those numbers would disrupt voter turnout at the end of the day. Is that right? Yes. 
what you and VoteCaster are doing this year is saying, fuck that, and you are going to tell people what the numbers are throughout the day in a couple of key states. Something like that, yes. You can say it better if you want to. That's basically right. You know, there's this custom among the media of not telling the audience how the election is going on election day. And Slate actually has kind of a long history with this. Slate published leaked exit polls in 2000 when Kinsley was editor and published leaked exit polls again in 2004 when Jacob was editor. And, you know, the argument then, which I think carries to now, is that there is no evidence that there's any reason to keep this information from voters. There's sort of this, there was a a bit of a panic and fear in 1980 when one of the networks mentioned some exit polls early that perhaps it had dissuaded voters in California. Um, But Carter also conceded the race early, which seems like might have been a bigger factor. Um, and in the conversation after that, the media essentially decided to keep same day election turnout tracking to itself. But I don't think there's a good reason to do that. I mean, there's no social science that suggests that releasing information like that has any impact on voters. And what you're left with is an election day where journalists kind of know what's going on, but they feel like they can't say it to their audiences campaign insiders have their own tracking mechanisms. They feel like they can't say that to, you know, they're not sharing that with anybody, but they're making all these decisions about where to put resources. And so essentially, the media and the campaign insiders have a bunch of information and voters are like the only saps left without it. And I feel like election day is the day when voters should have the most information and the most power, like they're the ones in charge, they get to decide who runs the country next. And having the media in the position of colluding with other media to like not inform the audience feels wrong to me. So the people we're partnering with, VoteCaster, um, what they're proposing to do is take the methodology that campaigns use to do real-time turnout tracking and to replicate that for our audience in a few key states. Right. And there, uh, Sasha Eisenberg, who was a columnist for you for a long time, is now there, right? So that, yeah. I assume that's like the connection or part of the connection. Yes. Yeah. So Slate is going to be the only place that does this on election day. Yes. Did you try and get anyone else to do this with you? No. Why not? I don't know. Seemed just seemed like we had plenty to do just working it out with Vocaster and, and publishing it. But I mean if like if part of what you're responding to and part of what you reject is the idea that the media is all colluding to do this together. They made this pact to not release this data and you, Julia Turner and Slate, think that that's bullshit. Um, why not like reach out to more outlets and say, Do you want to do this with us? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. Well, I think my question is, like, how much of it is about, like, this fervent belief that you have that we're doing a disservice to voters, and how much of it is, like, it's kind of like a good luck for Slate to be, like, the people who be, like, we're doing it. <laughs> you're telling me that that's not, I'm not allowed to look for a good luck for Slate? No, but if you're going to stand on uh, principle and call out the rest of the media for something that you think is disingenuous. No, that's totally fair. Honestly, this came, has come together. We started conversations uh, about this at the DNC. So we've been putting it together swiftly. That was a pretty quick turnaround. And looking through the... Well, I think that's honestly part of why Slate's in a position to do it is that we're, you know, we can still move pretty fast for an old lady on the internet. <laughs> Even though you're just uh, hanging out at a retirement home in Florida? I object to that metaphor. No, I mean, I think we're still pretty... You should object to that metaphor. We're, it's we're, objectionable. Yeah. I think we're we're pretty, uh, pretty spry, pretty nimble. And you guys look great. Thank you. You know, like a day over 20. Ah, thanks. Um, 
No, but honestly, we've we've just been um, we've been working pretty fast to put it together. But that is a good question. I'm gonna think that question over. That's a totally fair question. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is like uh, if this is about the media writ large, why not try and include the media writ large? Well, the media writ large listens to your podcast, so we'll accept all emails from people who are interested in talking more. Hey, Julia, thank you. Thanks so much. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Piper. Our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, and Igloo. And thanks very much to Julia Turner for taking some time. I, for one, uh, hope that she goes back to reviewing magazines every week. But until then, you can hear her on the Culture Gab Fest. You can read her on Slate.com. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.